This is Contra Radio from Contra.Scot. We plough and sow, we are so low that we delve in the dirty clay Till we bless the plain with a golden grain and the veil with a fragrant hay Our place we know, we are so low down at the landlord's feet Oh, we're not too low, the bread to grow, too low, the bread to eat. Welcome back, everybody, to this latest episode of A People's History of Scotland. And you're with me, Sarah Bennett, and I'm joined today by the author, Chris Bambury. And we have a guest, editor of Conta, David Jameson. Welcome to you both. We're going to be focusing today on Chapter 3, delving into the subject of the Reformation and the War of the Three Kingdoms. But before we get on to that, let's just rewind back to the middle of the 16th century for a quick recap. In England, the Reformation is underway. And in the 1540s in Scotland, it's the Catholic Stuart dynasty who's on the throne under James V. And when he dies in 1542, he leaves only one daughter, Mary, who will become famous Mary, Queen of Scots, as heir. So we see religious divide still being a key issue. But it's not just the difference in the beliefs of faith here. It's much more intrinsic to power dynamics as well, and politics, of course. There's a growing desire amongst the nobility, even north of the border in Scotland, to break free from the hold of the Catholic Church. And the name of the Calvinist preacher, John Knox, will start to be heard. And if anyone's interested, we're going to be doing a separate special Rebels Life episode on the life of John Knox. And we can always dig into this period of history in a little bit more detail in that podcast. But back in 1561, Mary Queen of Scots returns to Scotland after the death of her husband in France. And her aim when she comes back is not just to proclaim her right to the Scottish throne, but also to what she believes is her right to ascend to the English throne. And Mary goes about conspiring with France, with Spain, with the Vatican in order to try and accomplish this aim. But she makes a fair number of enemies at the same time. To cut a long story short, she is captured. She spends 19 years in captivity and is finally executed by Elizabeth I. However, a few years later in 1603, Elizabeth I on her deathbed is childless, the Virgin Queen. And so she proclaims Mary's son as the rightful heir to the English throne as well. So becomes the first James of England. This is the union of the crowns. Chris, I'm going to turn to you first. What impact did this union have upon Scotland and Scottish society itself? Well, I think the union of the crowns in 1603, it was a union of a crown under James VI, first of England. But the two states remained effectively completely separate. They remained separate in terms of their own parliament, the Privy Council, that was the Royal Council through which they were run. And in fact, there was also no free trade. This is quite important in the story. They retained the tariff barriers. And indeed, Scotland still continued to trade more with the European continent, Holland and uh, Baltic, Scandinavia, although England increases in terms of importance. James VI, the wisest fool in Christendom, as he was labelled, wasn't stupid. And he knew Scotland, and although he didn't want to go back there, he didn't want to antagonise anyone in particular. He did succeed in getting bishops appointed in the Church of Scotland, which is quite a success. His son, who comes to the throne in 1629, Charles I, is a very different character, uh, much more headstrong, 
not so diplomatic. He clashes with the English Parliament, who uh, have the power of taxation. So from 1629 to 1640, he tries to rule England without Parliament. In Scotland, he does two things which are intensely irritating for uh, both the Kirk and for the nobility. The first one was an attempt to take back from the nobility the land they had got at the time of the Reformation, almost 100 years before, from the Catholic Church, from the monasteries, the abbeys, and so on. He didn't have the power to do this, but it antagonized the nobility profoundly, who really feared what would happen. And the second thing was in England, he was instigating, if you like, high Anglican rites, which means almost Catholicism, uh, without the idea of the bread and the wafer is the blood and the flesh of Jesus Christ, but everything else. And Charles I attempts to introduce a Book of Common Prayer into Scotland in 1637. And this promotes a violent reaction in which the Kirk unites with the nobility and launches this rather staid document in 1638 in the Greybrows Kirk in Edinburgh called the National Covenant. Quite a conservative document if you read it, but it's restating Presbyterian principles. And they're not going to have papistry in the form of icons, and increasingly they're not going to have bishops. So the 1640, the situation is radicalized. And when Charles attempts to move in with an army, which he's forced to call Parliament in England to get the money for, and he won't do that, eventually he raises some money, the Scots humiliate him. And he tries a second time, and he's humiliated again. And this is quite important because what's happening here is Scotland, along with Ireland, ignites what becomes the English Civil War. Charles is forced to try and call Parliament again. Parliament refuses to accept it. The clash develops big time between the King and Parliament in England, and it erupts as well. One final point. We talk about the War of Three Kingdoms for a simple reason. In England, there was an English Revolution, and that is really important. It's important in the establishment of parliamentary democracy, Absolute monarchy was never going to be revived, even when they brought Charles II back. But that wasn't the case in either Ireland or in Scotland. There was no revolution in Scotland, and we can come and discuss that more. So that's why we call it the War of the Three Kingdoms. And there is no particular equivalent of the radical forces which emerge among what's called the Puritans in England during the course of that civil war, culminating, of course, with the Levellers, there is no equivalent of that really in Scotland at the time. I don't know if David agrees or not, but I think that's a fundamentally important distinction. I, I do. I think it's important to remind ourselves of the class structure of British and Scottish society at the time. What is what's called the First Reformation. So the Covenanter Reformation was often called by adherents, as it were, called the Second Reformation. It was a second attempt to reform Christianity in Scotland. In the First Reformation, the process had really been dominated politically by nobles who, as Chris says, part of what they're doing is trying to seize land, seize church wealth, and seize influence in, in society. So it's a strange kind of process where quite a backward social class, which is in many other ways retarding Scottish development, is the class that has initiative in what's generally seen as a kind of modernising development. But across Europe, Reformations are very, very different. There are countries where there's a relatively high level of involvement of city layers, intellectuals, more independent artisans, and so on. Those sorts of layers are still very weak in Scottish society. 
There are parts of Europe where the peasantry plays a huge and often extremely violent role uh, in the Reformation, as in Germany, where hundreds of thousands of peasants engaged in the, the peasants' war, trying to establish a very radical interpretation of Christianity that stressed the abolition of feudalism, the equality of men under God, and so on. Again, those kind of radical ideas really aren't informative of the Scottish Reformation, not surprisingly, because it's led and politically dominated, as I said, by the quite conservative elite layers in Scottish society. So what you have in Charles trying to re-exert control over the church is the strange tension which exists elsewhere in Europe, where monarchs are becoming a centralising force. Um, This will reach its kind of height with what's sometimes called enlightened despotism, such as that that preceded the French Revolution. This is a pre-national period, but central state actors are trying to exert influence over local rulers. And there's an attempt to break down the influence of local powers to the benefit of the central monarchial figure. It's also probably the case that we talk about this kind of high Anglicanism, a return to some of the practices, the the liturgy and so on of, of the Catholic Church. It's interesting to talk about why that happens. Partly it's purely about Charles's personal power. He's enforcing bishops on the Church of Scotland because he wants to influence the ideological reproduction of society. And the, an ideology in late medieval society is reproduced probably more in the pulpit than anywhere else. So he's trying to exert political influence. There's also a feeling that the Reformation is ultimately a destructive force, even in a country like Britain, where the Reformation was quite a formative experience. Remember that Charles had tried to keep Britain out of the Thirty Years' Wars, which ravished the continent. So there's a general feeling that these sorts of processes lead to disruptive political developments, as indeed they are. Meanwhile, in Scotland, the nobles are just unwilling to hand back the relative control they've wrested from London. So they're on a collision course. And it's interesting, as Chris says, that we really think of Scotland as being the country that triggers this gigantic uh, social revolution. There's a process of uneven and combined development here, where Scotland has, in one sense, a more radical or fuller reformation is probably the better way to put it. It has a fuller reformation, in a sense, because it's quite socially backwards. Once it's achieved Calvinism, it then doesn't go on to the kinds of radical developments like the levelers, because the levelers develop out of the fact that the reformation is a very incomplete process in the English church. The English church has still maintained many of its traditional ties to to Catholicism. This necessitates the, the middling layers, particularly in the southeast of England, to make a more radical break with the church authorities. So you have two parallel, very very different developments here in the processes of of reformation. Just to recap, how does religion, especially Presbyterianism, Calvinism and Catholicism, map onto this power struggle that's going on in Scotland? Because we know that by the beginning of the 17th century, there is this contestation over where the power lies, you know, the, the sort of power between the church, the power between the monarchy to rule, what role is, is it really playing? There's a European civil war going on between essentially Protestant states and Catholic states and internally in France going on. The 30 Years' War, as it's called. Catholicism in Scotland was essentially extinct. It existed in pockets in the Northeast and in uh, the Highlands, uh, the islands in particular. But in Ireland, and this is quite important, the majority were Catholic. There was an attempt to settle under James VI 
Ulster, which is the last Gaelic unconquered province, by bringing in Scottish Presbyterian settlers. James VI had done this a bit, a bit in the Highlands. 1641, there's an uprising against English rule. There are massacres greatly exaggerated, as to be said, in the propaganda of, the, of these uh, settlers. And this impacts into Scottish and indeed English society, where Protestants fear that the Catholic Church is going to make a comeback, but also Irish troops backed up by uh, Spain or even France. And look what's happened there. Look at these massacres. So there is a fear about this, and there's no trusting of Charles I, particularly his wife, Henrietta Maria, who is a French Catholic princess. And this what David talks about, this high Anglicism confirms this suspicion. I think David's put this well. I think the important thing about Scotland compared to England in 1639, 1640, Scotland has something which England doesn't. Because it is still a feudal society, it's armed. That's in the Lowlands and in the Highlands. And they can raise an army. And they have an officer corps, which has trained thousands of Scots that served in the European wars. They had an officer corps who were up to speed with the most modern military technology and thought. And Charles had nothing to counter this with. So he's humiliated twice by a Scottish army, forced to pay lots of money when they captured Newcastle and literally cut the coal off to London. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. uh, so in terms of that, he's humiliated by it and then forced to call Parliament in Westminster, Parliament refuses the money to raise an army, and the English Civil War gets underway. Very quickly, a radicalising process is injected into it. When the war begins, the Scots are militarily superior. And again, there are interesting parallels down through Scottish history, because this is also why the Stuarts reinvade in Scotland, because they know that they can raise an army in Scotland really quickly, because there's still the kind of clan levy, the, the feudal levy that exists in the Highlands. Um, they can call on the local networks, the family networks, essentially, that dominate Scottish society and raise an army very quickly in that way. So again, I mean, I, I'm going to sort of bore people with this concept of uneven and combined development, but it's astonishing that what you have here is Scotland is more militarily effective initially because it's more backwards. And then as the war develops, the Scots fall behind. They become rapidly superannuated by the wartime developments of armed forces. Now, in the first English Civil War, you have, remember that it's a war by increments. The parliamentary forces don't go in meaning to cut Charles's head off and declare a republic. Mm. At first, they want to fight Charles back to the negotiating table and rearrange a new dispensation between the parliament and the king. The king will stop abusing his privileges over parliament Parliament will have more say in the conduct of state affairs and so on. But as Charles is defeated in the first war, when he returns to fight in a second war, the parliamentary side increasingly radicalises. It begins by being led by relatively moderate parliamentarians. As the war continues and the hardship continues and the, the death toll mounts, you'll remember that by the end of the war, Charles is sentenced to death on the basis that he is a man of blood. You know, this is a very traumatic period in, in English history. The death toll is exceptionally high. The disruption to society is exceptionally high. You start to have sections of the Protestant community in England radicalising towards new ideas. There are innumerable sects by the end, some of them with completely demented ideas. Um, For example, the, can you give rant- us any demented ideas? The, the ranters, so-called, believed that orgies and drunkenness was a form of worship. 
So they would have wild sex parties and get completely blasted drunk as a form of worship. But you can find a sect in the English Revolution that believed anything was a form of worship. What, of course, is happening here is that the traditional political and religious authorities, their authority is being destroyed by the emergence of the English Revolution, and other ideas are rushing in to fill the gaps. I think it is important to draw a distinction between the intensity of that process in England and what's going on in Scotland. There is remarkably little of this in Scotland. You can search high and low for an equivalent to the levelers in Scotland, and you really don't come close. Now, that's because the class structure of these two societies is very different. Mm -hmm. The really radical forces in the English Revolution are being driven from the densely urbanized and densely populated parts of the Southeast, which are the most advanced, one of the most advanced economically and socially sections of, of European society. You, you have to think as well about the huge level of democratic organization within the English Revolution. The new model army, I think it shouldn't just be thought of as a military force, though it is a, a force of enormous military innovation. The tactics that it develops completely flanks both the English royalist armies and also proves ultimately to be more than a match for the Covenanter armies, which at the start of the war had been so effective. They deploy whole new strategies that actually inform the British army in coming centuries. But also that this is an army which is drawing from the townsfolk, artisans, from the apprentices, young apprentices, so they're not working class, but they're an urban wage-earning element of the population who drive much of the radicalism of the entire revolutionary process. And the army becomes a democratic institution. Soldiers start debating where next for the revolution. They start raising demands for the universal enfranchisement of men in English society, an incredibly radical demand for the period. And it's a place where a huge amount of pamphleting goes on. It's a place where a huge amount of lay preaching goes on. And it performs the role that in every revolutionary process, there must be a democratic centre of this kind. So in the French Revolution, it's the Estates General and the clubs. In the English Revolution, it's the New Model Army. In the Russian Revolution, it's the Soviets. We could go on and on. There's a centre of organised democratic life which is driving the process. Again, this is entirely an English phenomenon. There is no institution like this in Scottish society. The Covenanter movement is interesting. It's a mass movement, but it's not a democratic movement. It's dominated by the traditional elites of Scottish society who are leading it. Interestingly, there is involvement by women in the National Covenant. Okay. And this is something which has drawn a lot of, I think, scholarship recently and interest in this. There's even claims, I think, that women would turn up to places, to churchyards where the covenant is being signed and mm -hmm. demands that they sign it as well. It is quite a shift in Scottish society to have the women of Scottish society signing a covenant between the people, the king, and God. But it doesn't go further than that. These people don't start then making demands for enfranchisement, for the vote, for their rights of speech and assembly. All of that is seen as belonging with the church. What they are yeah. demanding is freedom for the church, freedom of worship, freedom for the church to establish its own doctrines and promulgate them. And that's a process that, again, is uh, absolutely controlled by the elite. So once again, you have this situation that because the independence of the Church of Scotland is so established, that actually becomes a constraint on the radicalism uh, of, of the movement. That combined with the weakness of some of the popular layers who are driving the revolution in England is key to why Scotland not only lags behind in radicalism, 
that ends up having started the war alongside people who win the war, Scotland ends up on the losing side of the war because it ultimately switches its allegiance to the royalist side. I think this is quite an important point, that the Covenanting movement begins to fragment as the English Revolution radicalises. So the first split is in 1644 when the Duke of Montrose, who'd been one of the, the military leaders at the very beginning of this process, goes with the king and raises an army mainly in the highlands of the northeast, backed up by elements of the clan MacDonald from Ireland who come to, come to help him, wins a number of victories in the north, but when he comes south, the Highlanders desert him and he's routed, has to flee to Europe. That's the first break. Montrose becomes one of these romantic Scottish heroes as well, missing out the fact that he's on the wrong side of the revolution. Then there's another break because the Second English Civil War, by that time, the Scots, King Charles of course surrenders to the Scots in 1645, and they don't really know what to do with him, the Scottish army in England. And so they end up selling him to the House of Commons. Now, I mean, we could maybe make a joke about this, so it sort of represents a stereotype of Scots, but they sell him, to literally sell him. But as that radicalisation begins, another section, much more significant section of the Covenanter movement breaks and sides with Charles I in the Second Civil War, marches into England and is routed at Preston by Cromwell. And then Charles I is executed in 1649. And a final section, the dominant section of the Covenanter movement, recognises and really, really don't like this. They didn't like King Charles at first, but they weren't out to cut the king's head off or abolish the monarchy. Far from it. And for the ability as well, there's obviously fear of what this all might all mean for their own position. So they join with Charles II, he's Charles I's son. Uh, and then Cromwell comes north. There's a dramatic battle at Dunbar where the Scottish commander Leslie is on the high ground with Cromwell on the low ground at Dunbar, fearing he's going to get beaten. When the Church of Scotland ministers insist that the Scottish army has to move down to the low ground, and Leslie does what he's told by the Kirk, and Cromwell wins one of these stunning victories and takes control of Scotland and creates for a short period a British Republic, which is a British Republic. So, for instance, he begins the task of pacifying the Highlands, and he's quite successful. He's also conquering Ireland. Mm -hmm. which the English state had never been able to do before. He also takes Jamaica and begins to establish the beginnings of the success of the British Empire. He engages in war with Holland, the main economic rival of England, and beats them. Though the English Republic doesn't last, it's a pointer to what could be achieved down the road. So when Charles II comes back, it seems as if everything's gone back to normal. And in a sense, in Scotland, it has. It goes back to the old parliament, which is completely undemocratic, by the way. The Privy Council, the Kirk. We'll come back on to that in a minute because things don't stay the same with the Kirk. But it seems as if there's two separate kingdoms united by one man. But already you can see that in England, uh, there are people, and increasingly in Scotland, people are looking back at what Cromwell did by the creation of an old British state and thinking, actually, you know, there's something there for us, you know? And this is going to be quite important come the glorious revolution of 1688. Cromwell has put down a marker. You know, I can just say something else, sorry to go on so long. I think David's quite right to say this. There is no real equivalent of the social forces which were making the English revolution. London is a driving force. Edinburgh compared to London is a village at this time. You know, it just doesn't have the social weight. 
There are no sort of yeoman farmers of the likes which Cromwell built the new model army in East Anglia from. They don't exist aware. But things are changing now. And we'll come on to what happens with the Covenanters. But one of the changes is, is one of the great Scottish aristocrats literally almost disappeared during this process during the war. And the people who begin to occupy a much more conscious social position in terms of leadership, a local rural level, or what we call the lairds, the smaller section of the nobility, and they become more powerful. And I think by this end of all this process, which might seem complicated, there is now a Scottish identity which is in play. And that identity is very much defined by the Church of Scotland and by Calvinism, but it's there. And you're also beginning to see some new radical forces finally emerging, particularly in the southwest of Scotland and Galloway, which is becoming more and more integrated with trade of cattle with England. And it's becoming, becoming infected, if you like, by some of the more radical I- I- ideas. Are you enjoying this episode of A People's History of Scotland? Make sure to hit the subscribe button and leave a review. You can find us at Contour Radio on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to podcasts. This way, you'll get every episode as soon as it's released, as well as all the other shows on Contra Radio Podcast Network. And head over to Contra.Scot, where you can read up-to-date analysis of news, culture, and events in Scotland and across the globe. When you talked about Cromwell and this uh, desire to create this British state, and the idea, I think, was to kind of subsume Scotland into England, if you like, and extend that up north. But in terms of the development that was taking place in England at that time, it sounds like it was quite starkly different. Was there quite a different rate of development around the sort of towns, the cities? Is that, is that right? If you cross the border, there's at least actually 1746, a man called General Wolfe writes in his diary, that when you cross the border between England and Scotland, it's obvious you're moving from one society to another. But literally the fact, in England, there is enclosure. Common land has been taken by private ownership. It's been enclosed by ditches, by hedges, etc. There's been improvement. Agriculture is now producing for the market. In Scotland, it's still run rig system. It's still production really largely for your own consumption. So there's a huge difference between feudal Scotland and the beginning of a capitalist England in terms of that. Huge differences, which are noticeable to anyone. You need to remember that the backdrop to these different rates of development are simple. They're, they're geographical in the main. Scotland is a country divided north and south into a kind of farmable lowlands. Very little strenuous agrarian activity can take place in mountainous country, which is often why you find that mountainous countries are countries where there's a, a large amount of migration, Scotland's like that, Palestine was like that historically, Ireland was like that and so on before we get on to the sort of military reasons and political reasons why people emigrate from countries. There was a lack of arable lands and in the pre-capitalist periods, it's your ability to accumulate agrarian produce and develop agrarian activities that lead to the conditions that allow for capitalistic development. And it's interesting to note the interplay between English and Scottish society, particularly in the south of the country. And, and remember that this, this divide is also in terms of like social class structure, culture, religion, language. It's a very structural divide that halts the development of an independent Scottish nationhood for a long time. 
So in the south of the country, in Galloway, Ayrshire, and so on, th- these are the places where Lollards from England settled and, and planted the seeds for the first Scottish Reformation. And these influences continue in that part of the country, including in terms of the more radical strains of the Protestantism that develop. But I think it's useful, though, to consider Cromwell as a figure here. And I think it's a cautionary tale. I think you do need to be sensitive to the extreme moral ambiguities, if you like, or and sort of vagaries of history that are, that are developing here. Cromwell's not a radical, I mean, he's, 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 he's on the radical end of the revolutionary process, but he also suppresses people like the levelers. He attacks the most radical outgrowths of the revolutionary process and consolidates it under his own control. But there's a lack of a base even for his version of the revolutionary dispensation of the protectorate. And he solves this problem by invading Scotland. He also seeks to solve the problem. I mean, he views Ireland basically, and you could, you know, Scotland is probably figures in the same calculation. He views these countries as potential backdoors to mm-hmm. Catholic Europe and to the revolution being destroyed by invasion through these backdoors. So he goes into Scotland. Compared to what he does in Ireland, it's relatively peaceable. He doesn't initiate the kind of what would develop into a colonial structure in Ireland. The invasion of Ireland is more brutal, more intrusive. People maybe know the famous phrase where he, he says that the Irish can go to hell or connect, which is the kind of very poor rural western part of, of Ireland. And so his, his attack on Ireland is marked by a greater brutality. Chris also talked about taking possession of Jamaica. So we see the very early roots of what would become the British Empire in, in these sorts of developments. Though again, with that, we need to be careful. You know, that, that's a concept beyond the mind of someone like Cromwell in the 1600s in this period. Cromwell's actions are stimulated as much by fear uh, of the revolution being overthrown as anything else. And, and Scotland's, the, the protectorate in Scotland is, Cromwell tries to build a base for his revolutionary process in Scotland. He doesn't really manage to do that. The Scots remain generally quite lukewarm, owing to that lack of a social base for people for whom that revolutionary process is meaningful. You could draw lots of parallels with, for example, after the French Revolution, France's invasion of Spain, which is a horrific affair, but Spanish society is simply not prepared to accept those radical ideas. Scotland and Ireland, though there's a big difference in the the degrees of violence and suppression used, are are in a similar position. Uh, Of course, the protectorate collapses uh, after Cromwell dies, his son takes charge for a brief time, and then there's the the restoration with Charles's brother coming to take the, the crown. The thing to remember here is that the covenant is just that. It is a covenant between the people and the king. And a consciousness has not developed here that it's possible for a people to live without a king. That's beyond the conception of the covenanters, for whom the only truly Christian community is the people, the king, and their God. There is no concept here, really, of a Protestant republic that's beyond the ideological scope of a movement that just doesn't have the popular characteristics of the English Revolution. Sure, but it is a popular movement, nevertheless. It has real roots, and perhaps that in itself is just worth clinging on to. Mm. And of course, the, the involvement, the direct involvement of women. So you said it doesn't have those radical sort of ideas that we see in England. But what does it have? It's not just vehement anti-Catholicism, although it probably does have vehement anti-Catholicism 
at its heart. But what else is there then, David? It's not radical and revolutionary. It is a covenant. What is it there that is worth us remembering? It is intransigent, right? So what happens after the restoration? The new king signs the covenant. Remind us what year this is, David? Yeah, 1660. Okay. The king returns. He then returns to power and lo and behold, he attacks the Covenanters. And this is the onset of what's sometimes called the killing time in Scotland. Mm. The widespread repression of the Covenanter movement. The Covenanters fight to hold on to the independence that they've gained. They lose in a battle outside of Glasgow and are crushed rapidly. This is a period where the church gains many martyrs, which are important to the later establishment of the Church of Scotland and its identity. It's one of these areas of Scottish history which was romanticised in the Victorian era, and you can still find shrines, which seem very Catholic, I have to say. I, I visited one recently to young women who drowned themselves or, or were drowned rather than accept the new religious dictums coming from the Restoration regime in England. To be positive for a moment about the Covenanters, a bit grim to say this, but the, the Covenanters, having engaged in some quite shameful returns to, you know, by siding with the kings, this is a heroic period where the Covenanters go underground, they're banned from preaching in their own churches, so they often organise open-air conventicles where they can continue to preach their hardline Calvinist doctrine and there's a, a huge amount of subversion. There are some extremely heroic stands against the restorationists who are just hideous thugs. And by the way, their local enforcers, of course, are Scottish nobles, once again, playing a, an ignominious role in this. It was quite common for, and this had been going on in England for a long time, for, for Protestant radicals to have their ears cut off as a symbol of humiliation, because, of course, everyone can see that you've not got any ears. Many leading covenanters who refuse to bend the knee have their ears cut off. I recently visited in uh, Lanarkshire a famous house where an artisan, I think he was a, a leather worker, and he was, I think, a, a Cameronian, who are the most kind of, again, you say people say radical covenanters, radical in the sense they were absolutely determined to keep fighting and never bend the knee. So it's, we're talking about intransigence here, a determination to stick to the Calvinist forms of worship. He had his ears cut off and he had a, a stone made on his house, which was a depiction of the shears that were used to cut his ears off. So that's the kind of spirit of complete intransigence. You've tried to humiliate me by cutting my ears off. I'm going to wear it as a badge of pride. I got my ears cut off because I was a good Christian. Then it developed into a kind of ethos of we're being persecuted just as Christ followers were. It's, mm -hmm. you know, and that is a holy duty. It's a holy duty to maintain against the persecution of the restorationists. I don't know if, if Chris wants to come in on the, on the restoration period. I think what you're seeing here is, again, although the covenant, the original covenant, 1638, 1639, is a conservative document, there is beginning to become a slightly more radical edge to this, particularly in the southwest of Scotland. 400 ministers split from the Church of Scotland over the imposition of bishops, and they are evicted from their kirk, they're evicted from their mans, they hold open-air uh, conventionals where they, people can worship. And these forces of repression, which David talked about, come in and smash them up, led by people like Black Tam Dael from the Bins in West Lothian, 
or John Quaverhouse, we have Viscount Dundee, Bonnie Dundee, as he's called, another thug who's kind of made into a romantic hero. And, you know, for instance, at one of these conventicles outside uh, at John Clogg, the Kilmarnock, the minister was preaching when they were warned that the troops were coming to snatch them up. And he tells his congregation, ye have got the theory, now for the practice. <laughs> now, that's a Leninist <laughs> statement. I mean, you know, it's a fantastic statement. Up until now, I don't think you could seriously contrast the Highlands and Lowlands of Scotland particularly too much. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're very similar in social structure and all, uh, all the rest of it. Now a change begins to come. A substantial section of both the northeast of Scotland, that's not the Highlands, the Lowland area, and much of the Highlands isn't part of this extreme Presbyterianism. There's a very small Catholic minority, but essentially they become what now becomes Episcopalians, the people who accept the bishop and also uh, the dominance of the monarchy who appoints the bishops in terms of that. And they are becoming aligned more and more with the Stuart monarchy in London. So, for instance, they bring a Highland host into the west of Scotland, literally to pillage and loot and take stuff away. And there's a reaction to this in the Lowlands, south of the Tay, with a sort of vehement beginnings of hatred of the Highlanders, forgetting that many of the clans are actually Presbyterian, a minority, but many are, but they are now seen as sort of savages, aboriginals, if you like. Right. And there's a beginning of a racist construct about the Highlands, which is very difficult for us to get our head around today, because we're the products of, again, a 19th century romanticism of the Highlands, but not at this stage. And therefore, the touching point comes with the death of uh, Charles II in 1685. Charles II was a closet Catholic. He was in the pay of the French state, Louis XIV, the Sun King. His brother, who is the heir to the throne, is a Catholic. And one thing that unites the majority of the elites and the common people, it must be said, in England and Scotland, is a dislike of the idea of a Catholic being on the throne. But when he does produce a son, it is clear that what's going to happen here is that the Stuarts have got a Catholic dynasty. And at that point, the English elite takes the decision. They don't want to replicate the revolution of 1640s, 41, 42, because of what happened, the radicalism of it. What they do is they invite James's daughter and her husband, King William of Orange, the ruler of Holland, to come to England with an army. They land, James flees, gives up, resurfaces in Ireland where there's armed resist, Jacobite resistance. But in Scotland, a section of this man, Claverhouse, I talked about, like Dundee, a section of the uh, Scottish society in the northeast and in the Highlands rally behind James VII. Meanwhile, the Scottish Parliament votes out James II, reintroduces the Catholic Church without bishops, and all of this is recognised by William and Mary. And essentially, there's a return to a structure where there's two kingdoms again, run in separate ways. But it's not sustainable anymore. And I'll leave off because there's events happen in the 1690s and at the turn of the century, the 1700s, which really begin to show that Scotland has got serious social problems which need to be addressed. Yeah. Topics for the next podcast, I think, which uh, we're starting to touch on, which is fine. Can I just come in on the yeah, sure, Dave. the glorious revolution of, of 1688, which, and if you recall, we've been on quite a winding path here. Mm-hmm. We started with the, the birth of the Covenant movement in Scotland. That helped to instigate a, a moderate parliamentary revolution in England. 
that led to a deepening radicalization uh, and to an extremely uh, well-organized and very radical revolution in England, which was suppressed by Cromwell, who established a short-lived republic, which was overthrown with the return of the monarchy, which is then overthrown again in a kind of revolution from above by importing an, an external monarch who is going to hopefully put all these kind of matters to bed. In Scotland, it means the end of the killing time proper. A new church arrangement is arrived at, which finds it has broad enough acceptance in, in society. And basically that is that the church is established on a Presbyterian basis. Local congregations, in theory, have the ability to choose their preachers, but it's understood by the Scottish nobility that it will be they who, you know, it will be local landlords who control the local communities who will be choosing the preachers. You can see that had the killing time continued longer in Scotland, it's possible that it would have produced more radical developments because a minority of the Christian community in, in Scotland now never joins this new state-backed church, basically, uh, a formerly independent church of Scotland, which is sanctioned by the regime of the Glorious Revolution. There's still to this very day a covenanter church in Scotland, which who are the remnants of the people who refuse to join the new church. So you can see that a sense of kind of popular independence has started to develop in the process of the counter-revolution. Quite a lot depends on who you're fighting. If you're, if you're fighting against Cromwell, who represents these demonic Republican ideas, it's quite easy for you to draw conservative conclusions. If you're fighting against a restored monarchy who stabbed you in the back and is now cutting your ears off because you're not Church of England enough, that obviously can drive you into to some quite different political conclusions. And as I say, they never really reconcile to the, to the new church, some of them, a minority. And also in 1688, you have, <laughs> and this is how, I mean, history is funny this way, particularly in Scotland, you have holdovers that last a very long time. It won't be until the middle of the 1800s that some of the organizational questions of the church are finally dredged up again, that are established in 1688, dredged up again in the disruption which is fundamentally about this relationship between the kind of democratic governance of the church and the various class relations that underpin that. So decisions are being made in this period which are quite formative to, to Scotland's future. We're going to start to wrap up soon, but just to come back to a couple of points. So the covenanters, one question I have is, when does that sort of disappear? I mean, you said there's a church still. and What becomes of the covenant covenanters ultimately and Chris, you mentioned the creation of a Scottish identity. To what extent are the Covenanters part of that creation of that Scottish identity? That is quite important. In 19th century Scotland and into the 20th century, I think there was a, a substantial identification with that. For instance, from the Independent Labour Party, when in 1922 the Red Clydesiders were elected to British Parliament, they left Glasgow from Sydney Station to the rousing of Presbyterian hymns, Covenanter hymns. They placed themselves in that. I mean, they were, they were believers. In fact, one of them was a Church of Scotland minister. That identification, uh, David mentioned the sort of shrines like the one in the grass market in Edinburgh to the Covenanting markets. This was really important stuff. And it becomes part, I think, very much of how you identified as a Scot. And it also meant an exclusion of others, which becomes important in the 19th century in regards to Ireland. David touches on something as well, which is the whole issue of patronage, which is the ability of uh, local landowners to control who's appointed the church, local church of Scotland minister, never goes away. You know, there are constant splits, not on a huge scale, but throughout the 18th century. One of them mentioned the Cameronians are 
instrumental in defeating the 1688 first Jacobite rising at Dunkeld. They hold Dunkeld against the Ohio, the Ohio Northeastern Army and defeat it, and that rebellion peters out. But there's constant sort of split succession of people opposed to this patronage, culminating, we're jumping way ahead in 1843 in the biggest events in 19th century Scotland, which is a huge split in the Church of Scotland over this direct issue, which doesn't necessarily involve radical politics. The leader of the disruption, Thomas Chalmers, was a Tory, conservative. The Church of Scotland is important for people because there is an element of democracy in it, potentially, in the congregations do have this nominal right, although it's affected by patronage to appoint their own minister. It's an element of social control and the, the witchcraft killings, which you haven't talked about, are the most obvious example of that. But it's also, there's an element of democracy in it, which is why people feel committed to keeping it. And so the first time, by, we're now coming to the end of this uh, period, the 1690s, we're beginning to see popular disturbances in which one had been one of the most socially conservative societies in Europe, where there have been very little popular protests. Things are changing now. David, anything to add on that? Where we're leaving this, the end of the 1600s, it's important to know that Scotland is still fundamentally a pre-capitalist society. Involved in forms of, I mean, we say feudal. I mean, the clan system is, in some senses, barely that. This is an older kind of tribal form of, of rule. It's a country that's still fundamentally divided north and south. That hasn't been overcome. And as Chris says, fighting between Highlanders and, and Lowlanders has in some senses created an even greater fragmentation between the two parts of the nation. And it's a society where urban life is still very underdeveloped. Uh, it's a society where ultimately political questions are being solved by England. Um, and that's obviously going to have ramifications going well into the future. It's much more powerful and much more developed southern neighbour. Scotland's society is changing partly as a byproduct of changes that are taking place in English society. I mean, this is the, the, that 1688 settlement I've described is a kind of echo of what's happening in England with the establishment of the new form of British statehood, which was really born in 1688, this new dispensation where you have, formerly you have a king, but power has quietly shifted towards new social layers, new types of elites. Uh, and Scotland is still in the shadow, really, of all these kinds of social developments. And it won't be until the coming century that that starts to change. But again, change in relation to developments in the wider British state. Look, if you're going to be serious about Scottish history, I think what these episodes we've discussed prove is that it's just not useful to come to Scottish history through the lens of Scottish historical continuity. So we've discussed that a first reformation in which Scotland was balanced between the powers of France and England, and the reformation process was often backed from England. That's important to Scotland's national development. No one could deny that the Church of Scotland isn't vitally important to Scottish national development, will become the Scottish nation state. England plays an important role in that. Relations with various English factions are crucially important to the development of the Second Reformation. And I think to really want to recover a people's history of Scotland, you need to remember that multinational context. There is a context where Ireland, England, and France in particular, and other countries that have been mentioned, are vitally important to that story. Now, think about me. There's two points I'd just like to bring in. 1688 and the Glorious Revolution and the establishment of that doesn't create a British state. It creates one all-British institution. It's the British Army. Mm. 
And a lot of the Duke of Marlborough, who's the key British general, is a lot of his staff are Scots. And in particular, the Earl of Iowa, I figure we'll talk about in the next episode, the eventual heir to the Duke of Argyll, the Campbells, is a leading British military figure. So one British institution is coming. And the second thing is the British monarchy goes to war with France because France is attacking Holland. It's a long story. This civil war, this European war, or religious wars are continuing. And suddenly Scotland, which has not agreed to this, Scotland's not even consulted about it, the trade with Holland, the Baltic, and Scandinavia is essentially cut off. You know, Scotland's traditional markets are no, no longer open for them because they're shut down by war at sea. And Scotland is now in an economic situation, which is quite perilous. So these are things we're going to discuss in the next episode. Right. Well, that seems like a good point to, to pause it for now. David, Chris, thank you once again very much for your time. Always fascinating to listen to you both. Thanks, everybody, for listening in and tune in again to the next podcast. Bye for now. We hope you enjoyed this episode of A People's History of Scotland. Next week, there will be a special Rebel Lives episode of the podcast on John Knox. Sophie Johnston will be speaking to David Jameson about a man who, for better or for worse, helped to fundamentally change Scotland forever. This is also based on Chapter 3 of the book, So if you've fallen behind with the reading, this is a great chance to catch up. We'll be back the following week with a new episode on Chapter 4, The Act of the Union and the Jacobite Rebellion. This series is only possible because of support from listeners like you. If you'd like to help us make more shows like this, please head over to contour.scot and make a donation, or subscribe to our Patreon channel. The music is by Ewan McLennan, from the album Stories Still Untold. Special thanks to him for allowing us to use this song. Well, oh, well, oh, as to war we go to fight some foreign country that yesterday was our greatest friend, today's our enemy. God bless our boys, the papers scream, praise them, the churchmen cry. But oh, when the war is done and we're all home, who cares if we live or die? Well, oh, well, oh, till that happy day we're called to a heaven on high. Oh, and the freedom we never had in our lives will be there on the day we die. But have you seen, oh, what suffering hell on earth for the promise of a heaven above? Oh, I not join the fight that one day we might See a heaven down here below See a heaven down here below